Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to N is for Natal. I have mentioned here, I think, that I am studying Portuguese. It's been about three years. Interesting language, and I've enjoyed the exercise. Our word for today is a Portuguese word. Today, as I record this, it is December 21st, 2023. So we're four days away from Christmas. And Natal is the Portuguese word for Christmas. Comes from the Latin verb to give birth, Natal. Hence, neonatal unit, the unit in a children's hospital for really tiny little babies that need some extra care. The uh, Spanish natividad, same thing. And we're going to do this a little different. I think we may do all of this episode in one segment. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes as, as we move along. But we're going to start out with a little quiz. I've got five questions that I'll give you. Each of them is multiple choice. Each of them will have four options as an answer. I'll read the question and then the four options, and you identify which one you think is correct before we go on to the next one. And when we've done all five, I'm going to go back and do them again and read the answers again and tell you which one is correct and why. So, are you ready? Number one, to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have taken Joseph and Mary about A, three days, B, one month, C, one week, or D, three weeks. Three, uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem, three days, one month, one week, three weeks. Question number two. Their method of travel was Mary rode the donkey and Joseph walked. B, Joseph rode the donkey and Mary walked. C, they both rode the donkey D. They took Amtrak. Number three. When they got to Bethlehem, the innkeeper said, I'm sorry, I have no room for any more guests. B. All rooms are booked, but you can sleep in the stable. C. Wow, she is really pregnant. D. Come back after the Christmas rush. Number four. This is a tough one. At the manger, there were sheep, donkeys, and goats. B. Sheep, cows, and goats. C. Sheep and cows only. D. Sheep, cows, and an Australian shepherd chihuahua mix. Number five. Herod ordered the slaughter of all boys under two years old. That would have been about a 200 children, B, 100 children, C, 50 children, or D, 12 children. So there's your five questions. I hope that you thought which one was the correct answer as I went through them. I'm going to go back now and go through it again, and we'll see how you did. The first one, to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have taken them about three days, one month, one week, or three weeks. 
And now I'll tell you that the total distance, um, if not as the crow flies, but as you would have to walk it on the roads as they existed back then, the total distance would have been about 90 miles. If they walked at a two mile an hour pace for eight hours a day, it would take them just under six days. Now note that Mary is pregnant, so it's ambitious to walk at that pace for eight hours. So if it would have taken them about six days, I think we're probably looking at a trip of about one week. Did you know that it's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem? If you did it as the crow flies, it would be closer to 70. Okay, their method of travel. A. Mary rode the donkey, Joseph walked. Joseph rode the donkey and Mary walked. They both rode the donkey or they took Amtrak. And the correct answer is none of the above. There is absolutely no mention of a donkey or of any other aspect of the journey. It only says they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Number three. When they got to Bethlehem, the innkeeper said, A. I'm sorry, I have no room for any more guests. B. All rooms are booked, but you can sleep in the stable. C. Wow, she's really pregnant. Or D. Come back after the Christmas rush. And sticking with a pattern here, the answer is E. None of the above. There is no mention of the innkeeper. No record of him or her or what he or she said. Nothing whatsoever. Number four. At the manger there were sheep, donkeys, and goats. B. Sheep, cows, and goats. C. Sheep and cows only. D. Sheep, cows, and an Australian shepherd chihuahua mix. And once again, the answer is none of the above. There is no mention of any animals at all. We know that the sheep were out in the fields because apparently it is the time of year when the weather is good enough that the sheep can still be out in the fields. So there wouldn't have been any sheep there. There wouldn't have been any cows because they didn't have cows. What milk they got, they got by milking goats. And I'm pretty sure that they didn't have any chihuahuas back then, but I'm, I'm not certain about that. Okay, number five. Herod ordered the slaughter of all boys under two years old. That would have been about 200 children, 100 children, 50 children, or 12 children. It helps to answer this question if you know that Bethlehem was a very small village they say that at this point in time, there were probably about 200 people in Bethlehem. Little tiny village, residents 200. Now, the text says that it was Bethlehem and the hills immediately around it, but not a lot of people lived in the hills. You would get the occasional outlier, but, but most people would have lived in the village because you didn't want to live out in the fields all by yourself where there was nothing whatsoever. And so, if we anticipate, if we try to uh, estimate about how many boys there would have been under the age of two in a, in a village of 200 people, we're talking generously 12 children. See, the thing here is that 
it's described as the slaughter of the infants. And we hear that word slaughter and think in terms of horrible, multiple deaths. But in fact, that's not the case. We're talking a dozen, maybe even fewer than that. Okay, what was the point of this? It wasn't just to have fun. It was to illustrate that most of us have gotten too much of our understanding of the Christmas narrative in Scripture, of the birth narrative in Scripture, from the front of Christmas cards, or uh, made-for-TV animations, or carols, or Sunday evening Christmas children's programs with little kids wearing bathrobes and towels wrapped around their head, and mangers made out of a sheet of plywood and crisscrossed two-by-fours. And we really have gotten very little of it from Scripture. The reason for that is because there's very little of it in Scripture. The Bible gives us just a tiny amount of information, and that in itself teaches us something. We've, we've filled in the gaps with romanticized details, and the result can be a real miss, a total miss, of what God wants us to see because our attention gets gets diverted to all these little romanticized, picturesque scenes, the crush that, that lots of people put up. We have... Okay, so I have to confess something. I got into trouble a few weeks ago. We attend a small group uh, that our church... Our church has a, a number of small groups. We go to one of them, and depending on how many people are there, it's as many as 16 and as few as 8 um, many of them have small kids, and so there's often some sickness. Anyhow, our, our host, uh, the couple that hosts it, he also leads it. His name is Chris, spelled with a K. And he usually starts off, we, uh, often we either have dinner or there are some light snacks or whatever. Okay, And then he sort of calls us all together in a group, and, and we sit down. And he usually has kind of an icebreaker question. And it was three weeks ago, his icebreaker question was, what is your favorite part about Christmas? And typically he, he picks some, we're all sitting in a circle around their living room. Usually he picks somebody and we go around either clockwise or counterclockwise. Um, sometimes my ADD gets the best of me and something comes to my head and I say it, too often out loud before I've had the opportunity to think it through. That has gotten me into trouble more times than I can remember. The good news is that's usually just Pam and I at home. But in this case, he said, what is your favorite part of Christmas? And before I could check myself, I said just loud enough for people to hear, the day after. It sort of went downhill from there because... There were several people in the room for whom Christmas is the highlight of their year. And, and I took a beating about the head and, and neck for the next 45 minutes. I was fine with it. They were doing it in fun, and I took it as good fun. But, but there's some truth in what I said. I really, if I stop and think about it, get irritated with what we've done with Christmas. Um, we, we fill up our houses with plastic kitsch, things all over the place that we would be embarrassed to have out at any other time of year. We spend hours putting that stuff out and stringing up lights 
um, that we then take down and pack away, in, we don't, that people then take down and pack away in boxes and stuff up in the attic and for the next 11 and a half months. We sing songs, most of which are poorly written and inane. And that's okay if that's what you choose. But, but right here, it diverts our attention from the biblical narrative, what the Bible says, and pushes it out of our consciousness. We spend more time singing silly Christmas carols, poorly written, um, than we do reading the narrative in Scripture. When was the last time you read the birth narrative in the Gospels? How many years has it been since your family sat down together and read the birth narrative in the Gospel of Luke? That's right, singular. In the Gospel of Luke, of four Gospels, there's only one that contains the birth narrative. The other three are absolutely silent on it. Easter, all four Gospels have chapters on the uh, death and, and burial and resurrection of Christ. There are seven verses in the Gospel of Luke on the birth narrative. And look what we do with Christmas and look what we do with Easter. How much money is spent buying presents? I read today in, in one of the uh, news sites that gets pushed to me that a study shows that the average American adult purchases Christmas gifts for eight other people. And, and so many Americans go into debt and buy things that are absolutely worthless. We flood our kids with toys that they are completely done with six weeks later and take up space in their bedroom next to last year's toys. Uh, okay, I realize I sound like a Grinch. And I realize that some of you are saying as you listen to me, yes, but... And I'm okay with that. You do with Christmas whatever you will, but please don't let lights and kitsch and songs and exchanging presents and the materialism of Christmas, don't let that push out what the Bible has to say about the birth of our Savior. So what I want to do in the rest of this episode is take a look at what the Bible actually says about the birth of our Savior. And I think it will help if we establish some basic uh, facts before we go on. The first is Nazareth. It is a small town in Galilee. Can you draw on a blank sheet of paper a map of the nation of Israel as it exists either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? There are three regions. Up at the top, the region called Galilee that coincidentally happens to be around the Sea of Galilee. At the bottom is Judea, an area around uh, mostly to the left, to the west of the Dead Sea, and in between an area that in the New Testament is called Samaria. Nazareth is a small town, not much bigger than Bethlehem, up north in Galilee. It is about eight miles due west of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And the people that lived in Galilee were what we would call hicks. They were country bumpkins. They were generally poor. They were generally uneducated. They were, were blue collar. Most of them were, as were the 12, many of the 12, they were fishermen or they were farmers 
or they uh, had flocks of, um, they were country bumpkins. Bethlehem is down south. It is five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And, th- and that sounds very close, but keep in mind that that's a two to three hour walk. And that's how everybody did it back then. They hadn't invented Yamahas yet. And so Bethlehem, like I said, a village, a tiny village of about 200 people, southwest of Jerusalem. It is in an area of gently uh, rolling hills that are green most of the year. And so it's ideal pasture land for flocks, uh, sheep and goats. As I said, the total distance between the two, if you're to walk it, is about 90 miles. A couple other things that will help us understand this narrative. Engagement, then, was very different than it is now. Engagement now happens when one or the other, um, traditionally the guy, asks the girl, will you marry me? And she says yes. Then he gives her some kind of a ring that is a, a, a symbol of their engagement that she wears until their wedding. And their wedding may be a month off or a year off or two years off. An engagement is of an indeterminate length, and it is just an agreement, an informal agreement between the two of them that they'll get married to each other. If one of them decides it's a really bad idea for any reason, they break off the engagement. It's just an informal mutual agreement between the two of them, and the one says to the other, I don't want to marry you anymore, and the engagement is broken, and then you have to decide, um, does she return the ring? Um, It was all very different back then. An engagement back in the time of Christ was a formal contractual agreement between the groom and the bride's father. He went to the father and said, I want to marry your daughter. The father either gave or withheld approval. If he gave approval, there was an official contract that was signed between them. There may or may not have been some kind of dowry that was paid, But this contract is written up and signed, and it is binding, and it typically lasts for a year, maybe slightly less. During that year, the two are never left alone. The the prospective bride and groom are never left alone. The purpose of the engagement is to demonstrate that he is getting a virgin who is being faithful to him. And that's why it lasts for a year. And that's why they are always chaperoned by a, by a family member whenever they're together. So that at the wedding date, when she is discovered to, to not have given birth, and that's why it's a year, because you want to exceed the nine month. That's why I said approximately a year. Um, at the end of that uh, year, at the end of the contract, there is a wedding ceremony. Now, here's the key ingredient for our purposes, understanding the narrative of the Gospel of Luke. In order to break that contract, it took an official action called a divorce. Yes, we use the word divorce to talk about the termination of a marriage. But the word then was used, both the termination of a marriage and the termination of this contractual agreement between the groom and the bride's father. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, that's relevant because of what we'll talk about in a minute. All right, now let's work through the chronology. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 
uh, uh, read. I'm looking at a piece of paper. I'm looking at my notes here. That's why I said read. I'm going to go through the, the key sections in Luke, identify them by paragraphs, and tell you what is in them, and in most cases, just give you a summary of what that paragraph says. But there are some that are important enough that I'm going to read them. And as I say that, I look up and I see that my timer is at 21 minutes and say to myself, yep, this is going to be in two segments. That's all right. We can do that. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Verses 1 to 4 are an introduction in which, among other things, Luke says that he's going to give Theophilus an orderly account. What does that mean? It is an expression that in Greek means a chronological account, an account in order. So we know that as we read through these next couple of chapters, we're getting a chronological account of the events in the order in which they happened. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, we get the birth of John the Baptist foretold to his parents. And this takes place in Jerusalem. And the reason is because Zacharias is a priest. Uh, there are lots of priests at this point. We've gone from, from, Aaron, uh, from Levi, uh, all of these generations, we've got a whole lot of priests now. And in fact, we've got more than we need. And so what they did was they set up a rotation system where you were put in your clan and your family and so forth. And then there, there was a calendar basically on the wall and you checked off all right i'm to serve doing this in the temple for this period of time and then you'd go back to your home it's likely that john the baptist's parents were from galilee just like uh, joseph and mary however he's now down in jerusalem because the bible says it's his turn to be on duty at the temple They've then gone to Jerusalem, and the angel of the Lord comes to them and tells them she's going to give birth. She's been barren, but she's going to uh, give birth to what's going to become John the Baptist, okay? Um, Zacharias is told of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Um, he, he has trouble with that. Interesting story, but that's what happens. Luke 1, 26 to 38 this is where the angel appears to Mary and announces that she is going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit and give birth to Messiah and tells Mary that your cousin Elizabeth, down in Jerusalem, is now in her sixth month. So between Luke 1.25 and Luke 1.26, there is a six-month gap. So what does Mary do? She travels to Jerusalem and stays with her cousin Elizabeth. Why would she do that? Because in a small village like Nazareth, a woman who is pledged to be married, a woman who is engaged, that is very quickly going to show herself to be pregnant, is, is not going to want to be in this small town. So two things happen, two things for her. That is to say, she gets out of the pressure that will be her small town when she's pregnant, and she can be with her cousin Elizabeth. And this is why I said Elizabeth and Zacharias are probably from Galilee and maybe also from Nazareth. First of all, uh, extended families would typically live close together. They do not now, but back then would have. Zacharias has probably gone to Jerusalem because it's his rotation. The Bible says that, and that's probably why he went down there, even though he's originally from Galilee and maybe from Nazareth. 
Okay, we're going to take a break here and go on to the second portion. So stick with me, folks. I think we've got some good stuff to talk about. On to the second part. <laughs> 